You're listening to episode 252 of the Ruby on Rails podcast, and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. Jason Sweat is a developer, speaker, trainer, author, and host of the Ruby Testing Podcast. Since putting his first website online in 1996, Jason has worked with organizations like AT&T, VMware, HP, and the University of Chicago. He has taught programming in the United States, the Netherlands, Bulgaria, and Nigeria. Jason lives in Sand Lake, Michigan with his wife and two kids. Welcome to the show, Jason. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. I'm so glad to have you. So as we always like to do with this show, I'd love to hear your developer origin story. Yeah. So like you mentioned, I started coding in the 90s. I put my first website online around 96. Uh, That's when my family got dial-up internet at home. Um, And from there, I, I worked for my dad originally when I first got started. He had a business for a little span of time, and I, I coded for him doing... Um, Borland Delphi, if any of the listeners happen to be familiar with that. Um, Did that for a little bit, then had a little bit of a gap. I moved away, went off to college, uh, didn't didn't do coding, worked at a grocery store for a few years. And then in 2005, started doing some PHP stuff, did that for like seven years, and then found Rails around 2011 and never looked back since. That's fantastic. So what actually drew you to Rails and the Ruby community? Were you involved in WordPress with PHP or how did that whole transition happen? So I did web applications with PHP, same kind of stuff that I do with Rails. Um, I had started researching Lisp around Mm. 2009 or so, I think it was. I found the language really, really interesting. I think I started reading Paul Graham's essays and he talked a bunch about Lisp in those. And so I, I looked it up, uh, thought it was really fascinating. But at the time, nobody was using Lisp or anything similar in production. People kind of are now with Clojure and stuff, mm-hmm. but at the time, nobody was doing it. So I was like, well, crap, I found this really cool language, but I can't actually use it for production, not really. And my research led me to, um, to both Ruby and Python, which which according to my research were kind of Lisp inspired in certain ways, like the map function in Ruby is inspired by Lisp's map function, as I understand. So I'm like, okay, well, if I can't use Lisp itself, maybe I can use one of these other languages. So I kind of took Ruby and Rails for a test drive. Same thing with Python and Django. I liked both of them a lot. I liked both frameworks and languages a lot more than PHP but I liked Rails a little bit more than Python and Django. And so that's kind of what I went with. That's awesome. So you are a podcast host yourself. You run a Mm -hmm. podcast focused on testing in Ruby. So why did you decide to focus on that topic? Yeah. So in January of 2018, I joined this, this class called 30 by 500. It's Mm -hmm. kind of a class. Most of the students tend to be like uh, developers, designers, I think mostly developers. Um, and the idea is you learn how to build your own product and launch it. Uh, so a, a lot of people who take that class end up launching some kind of ebook or online course or something like that. And if you're going to do that, you have to find some kind of topic. Mm-hmm. And so I said, okay, what's, what's my focus going to be? And I went and, uh, did some research on some online forums, mostly Reddit. And I, I basically asked the question, what do Rails developers need help with that I can help them with? I found a lot of te- a lot of questions about testing. 
And so I'm like, okay, a lot of people are struggling with like how to get started with testing and all that kind of stuff. I think I can help with that. So I started, I started writing some blog posts and stuff like that just to kind of test the water. Uh, got some traction with that. And so I'm like, okay, uh, this is something that people do need help with. And in fact, it looks like I can help. And I, I went all in, started the podcast, still do the blogs. Uh, and now my website is just, it's 100% folk, well, 97% focused on Rails testing. It's fantastic. What a cool class to enroll in. I mean, the dream is to be able to tackle a project both from the non-technical side and the technical side. So it really sounds like you have both set of skills. So um, that's, that's a really neat way to approach a project. Just make sure that there's actual genuine interest first by really starting out with that MVP and then rolling from there. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Not to get too deep into like the business parts of it, but like I did the thing that every developer does, which is build a product and then say, okay, who wants to buy this? Oh, wait. Yes. Nobody. <laughs> yes. We have all done that. I think it's a rite of passage. Yep. So let's bring it back to Rails and our main topic today. So testing legacy applications in Rails. Mm -hmm. So let's start with what are the common challenges of working on a legacy Rails project? Yeah, so let me list some 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 of those characteristics. But first, let me just say like, what is a legacy project? Because uh, different people have different definitions. But I think most people would probably kind of agree that it's like a project that is old, buggy. The code is is hard to understand. Maybe the original people who wrote the code aren't around anymore, so you can't ask them like, hey, what the heck were you thinking when you? when you built this or what does this mean or, or whatever. And maybe the uh, technologies are outdated, all that kind of stuff. Um, but when you're working on a legacy project, there's, there's kind of some certain challenges that everybody tends to have. One is that it takes forever to do anything. Um, so stakeholders might say, hey, can you uh, add this certain feature and you go to add the feature, and maybe it's something that you think should take an hour, but instead of taking an hour, it takes a day, or it takes a week. Like sometimes it's just absurd. Things that should take a really small amount of time take a really long time. So that's one, one characteristic of legacy projects. Um, another is that deployments are scary. So oh, you have yes. this- mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sure you've been there. You have this uh, creaky old project and you, you deploy it and every time you'd make a deployment, something breaks. And so deployments are, uh, leading up to deployments is this like stressful crunch time and it's like this shuttle mm -hmm. launch type experience. And then after the deployment, there is firefighting and maybe just kind of like bad feelings all around. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the trouble with this is that because deployments are so painful, they're done less. And because they're done less frequently, they become more painful. So that's tough. That's another, uh, that's another fact of life in legacy projects uh, quite a bit of the time. Um, due to the fragility of these legacy projects, it's often the case that trust in the development team is low from the development team to other parts of the business. The dev team says, you know, okay, we can do that thing you asked and we think it'll take a month and then it takes six months. And so internal stakeholders inside the company say, okay, well, 
the developers say this is going to take two months to do this thing, but last time they said it would take a month, it took six months. We don't really believe anything they say. So that's a challenge. Um, related to that, the, the dev team is always perceived as being behind. And so this is another like vicious cycle type thing. Because the project is so quote unquote behind, uh, there's enormous pressure on the developers to cut corners. And the reason that's a, that's a vicious cycle is because everything takes a long time because the code is, is so unmaintainable. Uh, but because of the time pressure, you cut corners, making the code even more unmaintainable, making it so future changes take even longer. Yes, that makes absolute sense. And especially to, you know, developers are so highly sought after. And so to be in that environment where you're encouraged to cut corners, you feel like you're always behind. It's just very unpleasant. And so you're just so yeah. much more likely to lose your developers in that kind of environment because they're no longer getting joy from their work. Exactly. Yeah, that's actually another thing that I had on my list is that turnover is high uh, because it's just like not a fun situation to be in. And, and so good people, they're like, well, there's a lot of jobs out there. I don't have to work here on this crappy project. I can go work somewhere else. And so often they, they do. And it's yet another vicious cycle because the more turnover you have, that the much more time you have to spend training new people and stuff like that makes development even slower. It's probably even harder to, to take components of the application that you're really proud of and open source it because you're embarrassed of all yeah. of the different parts that are just hacks, really. It's just icing that you put on top of a bad cake. Exactly. And so, you know, and developers want to share. They want to be part of the community. They want to have parts that they can feel that they can open source and put out there to gain recognition, not only for themselves, but for their companies. So they, you know, that is a solid list of really what uh, a legacy application can do to an organization. Yeah, yeah. And so now that everybody listening is thoroughly depressed, um, <laughs> what I want, <laughs> what I, I want to touch on like, okay, so we're gonna, we're gonna get to like, how do we fix all these things? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I guess really to, to start off with, so why is it harder? So I, we're gonna talk about testing, but why is it harder to add tests to a legacy project than a greenfield project? Yeah, yeah. So part of the answer of like, how do I turn this situation around? Um, you know, there's no single silver bullet that's going to do it. But but testing can, um, it's, it's one tool in your toolbox that can make a big difference. Um, but it's not easy to add tests to a legacy project. And there's kind of two big reasons. One is if you have a, a project that has no test coverage at all, you can't just say that, okay, Today, from now on, I'm gonna write tests for all new code. The reason for that is because there's no test infrastructure in place. And that's not something that you can just poof, put into place in five minutes. Often there's quite a bit of, of stuff that needs to be in place in order for that to be possible. So that's one challenge, that's one obstacle. And the other has to do with how the project is coded. Um, if a project was built without testing in mind, often the code will be written in such a way that is not very conducive to testing. And the reason for that is, is uh, it's all about dependencies. Mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to test code that has dependencies than code that is more loosely coupled. So like, just to give a quick example, if I have a class that depends on two other classes, and each of those two classes depends on two other classes, 
then in order to test this original class, I have to spin up instances of all these other classes just to be able to write a test. And often like that chain of dependencies is so long and complicated that it's, it's impractical to write that test. And you go back to the time pressure and stuff like that. It's like, okay, this, this is a 15 minute feature. It's going to take me six hours to write this test. That's crazy. I can't do that. Uh, I'm just going to, you know, uh, close my eyes and, and put this in here real quick and move on to the next thing. So what, what are some techniques that developers can use to make it easier to add tests to legacy projects? Okay, so like the step zero is kind of to realize that it's going to be a long, hard road um, and not have like, the first step is to, to have realistic expectations about how it's going to go. So like, it's going to be hard, just like acknowledge that. And is it getting the team to agree, like even outside stakeholders that like, hey, you know, I'm coming into this legacy project. So say you get hired at a company where you have this massive legacy project, doesn't have any tests. Is it getting buy-in from not only from your engineering manager, but also the organization that there's going to be a pause on some new features in order to just get everything properly set up again? Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that. So I personally wouldn't be inclined to like um, go to the external stakeholders and try to get buy-in from them because just like, uh, you know, I'm kind of like a cynical old man at this, at this point in my career. And uh, my, my experience is that they never, they never are good with it. They're always gonna say, well, you know, we have real work to do. We, what you're proposing sounds nice. Maybe we can do that someday, but not now. That's usually the, the response. So I would like keep, keep that detail uh, kind of isolated from them. I wouldn't mm -hmm. like sneak around, but like, you know, they don't need to know how the sausage is made quite to that degree. What is important is to have buy-in inside of engineering. So I worked at a company where, um, where we had a certain area of our application that, that really didn't have good test coverage. And the message from leadership, uh, engineering leadership was we need to have tests for all our new code. But like I mentioned kind of earlier, we didn't have the test infrastructure in place that enabled that testing. And kind of more importantly, inside of the engineering team, we didn't have a shared vision of what a successful testing scenario would look like, if that makes sense. So we didn't have like a, the, the way one person would write a test, might be way different from the way another developer would write a test. They might have different opinions about what's important to test and what's not. And so it really just didn't work out. So that's very important to get everybody to a certain extent on the same page with your testing plan and your testing vision before you try to get started. Okay, well that makes sense. So now we're at step zero, we've got buy-in. Everyone thinks that you're a hero for deciding to properly set up testing within your Rails application. So where would you go from there? Yeah, so I would go with testing the, the easy stuff first. And the reason for that is because you need to have some kind of test infrastructure before you can start testing. Mm -hmm. And if you just try to like, if you take a step back and think about what's, what are the most critical paths in my application, 
like if I have a contact form and in a different part of my application I have a checkout page, well, it's like obviously the checkout page is more valuable to the business than the contact form. If the checkout page stops working, we stop getting revenue. If the contact page breaks, then, you know, almost nothing bad happens. So it might be logical to, like, try to put tests on the checkout page first. However, the checkout page might be really hard to test. There might be a lot of stuff that needs to... Um, a lot of like supporting objects, supporting data that need to be in place in order just to write a single test for the checkout page. So you might not want to start there. You might actually want to start just writing a test for the uh, for the contact page because very little is necessary to make that happen. And that can be kind of a quick win to get some momentum going and saying, there, we wrote a fir our first test. We actually have a test suite now. It only has one test in it, but we can run the rspec command or whatever and the tests run and we see green and it passes this is a win and then every test you add after that is just incremental rather than trying this super hard task of testing the critical path first that makes a lot of sense uh, for me when i get into a new application usually the first test i like to write are the relationships between the different models just because mm -hmm. that's that's laid out very clearly to you usually in those models assuming that everything is kept in a nice tidy order but I like those tests just because you know really active record is doing the bulk of the work for you at that point and if those tests pass it you really start to get a feel of the database schema which is really such a core, a core part of that Rails application so getting to understand the gem file the schema and the routes really are, really helps you get onboarded into an app so I like to test those first yeah yeah I totally agree um, so you know, that, that addresses like how to get started with it. You test mm -hmm. the easy stuff, but what about when you do get to that hard stuff? What about when you do want to test that checkout page? Um, and there's, there's a couple certain techniques I like to use. So it's really common in a legacy project to pop open a, uh, like a model file, for example, and it's 800 lines long. It's hard to put a test around something like that because again, it has a lot of dependencies in order to let's let's continue with like this checkout page example in order to create an instance of an order object you might need to have an instance of a line item object which is connected to a product object you need to have a customer object somewhere all this stuff and that's kind of um, impractical perhaps to bring all that stuff into existence just to write your first test for this class so what I often like to do is, let's say there's a certain method in that class. It's 40 lines long. It's a huge method. I don't understand this method yet, so I don't want to change it. Um, there's a little bit of a chicken-egg problem. You don't want to change the code until it has tests. But in order to be able to test it, you need to change it because you need to break the dependencies before you test it. So what I like to do is I'll just take like a chunk of that 40 line uh, method, maybe I'll copy and paste the whole thing and just put it in its own separate class. That way I didn't modify this code because again, I don't understand the code yet, don't want to change it because I don't understand it. By putting it in its own separate class, I'm kind of leaving it untouched but now I have this new small class 
that's much easier to test. I don't have all the baggage of that original 800 line file, that 800 line class. I just have this one small chunk that I extracted and then I can put tests on it. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, and, and like, okay, so what tests do you write for that chunk of code? Mm -hmm. I use a technique. Okay. So I'm, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants to a large extent, uh, by saying all these things I'm saying, cause there's, there's this book working effectively with legacy code by Michael feathers. He describes certain, certain techniques. One is, uh, he calls it characterization testing. I kind of think of it as reverse TDD. So to continue this scenario, we have this, this 40 line method that we cut and paste out of our big class and we made a new class, but I have no idea what these 40 lines of code do. So what I'll do is I'll come at it from maybe a couple angles. One is you can write a test that says like, expect this method to return ASDF. Mm. I know it's not going to return ASDF, but I'll write this test run it and say it'll say test failed we expected asdf but the actual result was 87. it's like okay maybe i don't understand why it returned 87 but i know that with these particular inputs in this setup it's going to return 87. so i'll change my test now it doesn't expect asdf anymore it expects 87. okay and then I'll maybe change the, I'll, I'll add another test with different setup, different inputs and stuff like that. Expect it to return ASDF. This time it doesn't return ASDF, of course, it returns 12. And it's like, okay, under these circumstances. And, and so you can repeat this process over and over until you kind of get a feel for like, okay, I see what this is doing now. If I give it these inputs, it gives these outputs. So it must, must be doing such and such. So that's characterization testing. Um, my technique that I call reverse TDD is okay. So it's, it's too late to really do TDD because the code already exists, but I can comment out these 40 lines of code in this class. And then I can look at the first line, the first commented out line, and I can say, okay, I'm not sure what this line is doing or why, but let me write a test and and okay it looks like this will output um the customer name and so i'll write a test that expects the customer name the test will fail because all my code is commented out and then i'll uncomment that first line run the test sure enough i got it right it does in fact return the customer name okay so now that first line is covered by a test. Then I'll go to the next line that's commented out. I'll try to guess what it's gonna return. I might get it wrong, right, I might get it wrong. I don't really care at that point because I know that once I get to the end of, of that process for that particular line, the expectation in my test is gonna match. So I'll, I'll repeat that all the way down, uncommenting one line at a time, and then I know after I'm done, that all 40 of those lines that I uncommented one at a time are all covered by tests. That does two things. One is it enhances my understanding of that code. Two, because everything's covered by a test, it enables refactoring. 
So I can take this like yucky, hard to understand code. I can clean up the variable names to make them more descriptive. I can take this one single method and break it into several methods. Maybe I take even this class and break it into a number of smaller classes. And then by the end of it, I have a pretty good understanding of that piece of code and I have really good test coverage. That makes a lot of sense. Now, how important is test coverage to you? So what are you using in order to make sure that you really have that class well tested? Because we all know that it's easy to write artificial tests that don't really test anything. Yeah. So I only just recently started measuring the test code coverage percentage on my projects because I don't really go by, um, I don't go by a percentage. I go by, mm, I don't want to say I go by a feeling cause that's not it, but like I kind of know what's important to test and what is less important to test. And I, I actually, I coded a project for, for a couple months with no uh, test coverage tooling. And then I put SimpleCov on the project and discovered that I had about 90% test coverage. So apparently that's about what I think is good because that's, that's what I coded. Um, that's good. That's fantastic that you have that intuition. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was afraid, you know? I was like, <laughs> what if it's gonna be like 14% or something? But no, I, I was good. Um, so, you know, to kind of answer the, the question of like, what's important to test versus what's less important. When I'm building any particular feature, I will put, so I use R spec, I'll put both a, a feature spec on that, on that feature. So if anybody's not familiar, um, th this is the kind of test that will actually spin up a browser, click through the form, hit submit, whatever it may be, and then, and then verify the correct result in the browser. So that gives me assurance that all the parts are working together. Uh, the, the, the database is there, the Ruby code is there. If there's any JavaScript that's working, the HTML, well, at least the HTML uh, doesn't test your CSS. Um, but I, can, I know that all these layers are working together to produce the correct end result. I definitely um, use feature specs heavily uh, but I don't write a large number of feature specs. So I'm not going to write a feature spec for like every little edge case. Mm -hmm. I'll write a feature spec kind of for the, the happy path. Um, and then for all the edge cases, I'll drop down a level and use model tests um, or any kind of test that doesn't spin up the whole application stack and test my edge cases there. Oh, that's interesting. So how do you feel about Rails' decision to default to mini-test? It sounds like you're a big fan of RSpec. You know, I use RSpec just because, because kind of um, everybody uses it, so I use it. I didn't put a lot of thought into it, and I don't know that like my decision-making process for using it is really a defensible one. Um, I kind of chose RSpec because uh, for like career marketability reasons. You know, mm -hmm. everybody uses RSpec, and so it's it's expected that a Rails developer will know RSpec. And since RSpec is what you're likely to encounter in the wild, you know, it's uh, your your knowledge of RSpec is probably going to serve you. Whereas Minitest, I found this interesting phenomenon where uh, commercial projects tend to use RSpec, 
and open source projects tend to use Minitest. At least that's been my, my observation. That's been my observation too. I see a lot of commercial projects using RSpec and then a lot of um, Ruby focus books. When they're trying to prove an example, they'll use Minitest because it is, it's smaller, it's, it's more eloquent in my mind. But for me, whenever I'm working on a legacy application, RSpec is, uh, it's comfortable for me. So I'm trying to minimize how many uh, new things are happening at once. And so I typically reach for RSpec. It works well with VCR. And so I, I really do enjoy RSpec, though I have a goal of trying to use Minitest more just because I, I've heard really good things from people who love it. Yeah, yeah, I have too. And what I will say is that I honestly don't think it matters a lot which which framework a person uses because uh, the syntax is different, but the principles and challenges and all that stuff is the exact same. I agree. So what are some testing libraries that our listeners should be aware of? So I don't have any like cards up my sleeve that are like <laughs> mind-blowing libraries you've never heard of. I just use the same stuff everybody else uses. So like if, if you're doing testing in Rails, you're, you're going to come across Capybara, FactoryBot, and Faker and all that stuff. And uh, it's probably like outside of the scope of this discussion to go into details of, of like what those are and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll link but, them all in the show notes, folks. Yeah, yeah. Um, what I do want to say is like, if you're getting started with Rails testing, you do have to be familiar with, with the tooling to a certain extent. Um, but maybe even more important is, is the principles. And so there's a couple places I would recommend to, to go to learn principles. One is, um, I just recently bought this book, Test Driven Development by Example by Kent Beck. That was one of those books that was like on my to read list for a long time. And I, I finally bought it like 20 years into my development <laughs> career. And it's really good. Turns out people recommend it for a reason. It's, it's really good. Um, it kind of turned on the lights for me, especially in terms of uh, refactoring. So that, that's a great book. Um, X Unit Patterns is another one that I bought recently. And that one is, it's a serious book. It's like 800 pages long. And my fear was that it was gonna be 800 pages of just like obtuse, uh, super hard to grasp, like deeply academic material. And I was pleasantly surprised to find that it was super accessible. So that's definitely a good one. Um, and the last one that I'll, that I'll recommend book-wise, because uh, we're talking about legacy code, Mm-hmm. is again working effectively with legacy code by by Michael Feathers. I read that book for the first time some years ago um, and some of these techniques described in the book like sprout method, sprout class, I discovered that they're actually also described in uh, the book Refactoring by Martin Fowler. So I went on like a big spree recently and just bought like all the books I've meaning, been meaning to read forever. Refactoring was another one of them. And I, I bought that partially because X unit patterns referred to the refactoring book so many times that I was just like, okay, I, I need to buy the refactoring book so I can like have a foundation to understand uh, these, these testing stuff. I definitely so, do the same thing where mm-hmm. uh, one book recommends another. So if I enjoy the first one, I'm like, okay, great. It's like a good friend recommending a book. I'm like, absolutely sign me up. Exactly. 
yeah so those those books are all all great i would recommend those Wonderful. Well, um, I am sure our listeners are going to want to keep up with you, Jason, and all of your uh, your testing knowledge and whatnot. So how can our listeners follow you? Sure. So I host the Ruby Testing Podcast. And Brittany, you were a guest on my show. So maybe that's a good, uh, a good <laughs> intro for people who want to listen to my podcast, too. Um, I write about Rails testing at codewithjason.com. Um, I'm working on a post right now that's all about um, how to put tests on legacy projects. So that, that'll definitely be out by the time this, this goes live. Um, so there's that and just all kinds of stuff about Rails testing. Um, and if, if you're listening to this episode before January 2019, I'm speaking at RubyConf India. Uh, so dear listener, if you're located in India, or planning to be in India in January 2019, uh, you can come see me speak at RubyConf. That's fantastic. I hope you have a wonderful trip. Yeah, thanks. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Jason. You provided so many wonderful uh, resources that I will be sure to have all linked up into the show notes. Listeners, as always, if you have any feedback, please reach out to me on Twitter, and we'll catch you next week. Thank you, Jason. Thank you.